Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast in the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 14th of September 2020, and this is episode 175. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to Dr. Aaron Pegram, Senior Historian at the Military History Section at the Australian War Memorial, about his recent book on Australian POWs on the Western Front during the Great War. This book is published by Cambridge University Press. I spoke to Aaron over the interweb from his home in Australia. Hi Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Uh, well, thank you, Tom. Well, uh, my name is Aaron Pegram uh, and I work as a, as a senior historian in the military history section at the Australian War Memorial. And how I got involved or how I got interested in military history was primarily through family history. I had, just because we had history books on the shelf at home and at my, my grandparents' place, I was always truly enamored with the past, whether it be from Australia's colonial past, bushrangers, convicts, all that sort of, uh, that, that sort of time period. Um, but I really sort of got engaged. Uh, my, my grandfather had served in the Second World War in a light anti-aircraft uh, unit uh, in, in the Pacific and, uh, in, and at home in Australia. And really, as a young man, that kind of made it a, a major impression on me. I started reading military history like I was reading everything else at that time. And I was able to sort of, I guess, put my family's experience within a certain framework. When I left school, I went to university not knowing what exactly what I was going to be doing. So I started a Bachelor of Arts, became out a Master of None. <laughs> so I studied history and psychology at university. And it wasn't really until I got into my um, my third year at university, my my sorry, my fourth year, my honours year, where I got to really sort of set my own study. So I did a local study of how uh, a certain Australian community uh, responded to the Vietnam War, uh, challenging some of the many myths and perceptions of life on the home front during those turbulent times as being full of protests and dissent, um, whereas this community, uh, which had two military bases, one of which accepted national servicemen who then went on to serve in Vietnam, was overwhelmingly supportive of it. So I really sort of hit my stride there, and, and I figured if I was going to find a job in the field of military history, it was going to be if I moved to Canberra, the, the, the capital of Australia. That's where all our national institutions are. It's where all the libraries and archives are. So I packed my bags and moved to Canberra, firmly with the view of getting a job at the Australian War Memorial. It didn't sort of quite sort of end out, turn out that way immediately. I, uh, I found curatorial positions at Old Parliament House and at the National Museum of Australia. Uh, and that sort of gave me some good chops in the museum world, um, learning the craft of, of curatorship and caring for for items in the Australia's national collection. And by that stage, I was still reading a, bit, a lot about military history, particular focus on the First World War and Australia's experience within it. That was a, a nice transition into the, the Australian War Memorial. I was entered the War Memorial as a curator, where I was just accessioning photographs into the memorial's collection. And that ultimately led to me studying a, a, starting a PhD part-time, which I did for over 10 years <laughs> whilst, uh, whilst, whilst working, uh, whilst working at, at the memorial. And uh, it, was, it was quite fortunate because I had a position that, that ultimately fed into my thesis and then my thesis ultimately fed into the, into the work I was doing at the memorial. And uh, 
nearly 14 years later, here I am. I'm now, uh, as I said, uh, working at the Australian War Memorial as a, as a historian. I recently moved, uh, I worked throughout the First World War centenary, leading battlefield tours, uh, writing opinion pieces in national newspapers, writing books, uh, lots of podcasts, lots of media, talking and about Australia's involvement in the First World War and, and putting Australia's, the Australian experience in a much broader perspective, much, much broader international perspective. So a lot of challenging time-honoured myths and misconceptions about Australians and what they achieved and didn't achieve during the war, uh, and also the impact of the war on Australia, uh, Australians at the front and then also on, on the Australian home front. But these days, now that the First World War Centenary is behind us, um, I've moved over to uh, our gallery development team, where I'm, I'm currently working on, I'm currently one of the concept leaders for the memorial's new uh, conflicts in the Middle East region galleries. Uh, in recent times, the Australian government has, has, has funded a, a massive expansion of the memorial's galleries to give base to the recent conflicts that Australians have fought in ranging from the Gulf War, Iraq, Afghanistan, and current operations against ISIS in northern Iraq and Syria, and as well as over nearly 70 years of peacekeeping operations and humanitarian operations that the Australians have been involved in. <clears throat> so I'm currently in the midst of the fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq and the Gulf War, researching that for the Australian public. We don't have an official history just yet, so, so actually researching and writing and, and discovering all these stories uh, associated with some relatively recent history is is quite challenging, uh, but it is certainly rewarding. So you, you talk about the Australian War Memorial. Could you give us some background on what this is? Okay, so the Australian War Memorial is one of Australia's uh, premier tourist attractions in the country and indeed the world. We, we get over a million visitors a year and Whilst many of them are members of the Australian public and they tend to be repeat visitors, they're also a vast quantity of international visitors. We're currently closed. Uh, we're recording this podcast during the, uh, the COVID-19 epidemic uh, and then all the social distancing that entails, which also means that uh, we're, 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 our galleries are, are closed to the public. Um, which is an interesting time in the lead up to, to Anzac Day. But nevertheless, uh, the War Memorial is three things. Primarily, we're a place of commemoration. Uh, 106,000 Australians have died on active service since uh, uh, since the Boer War. Through to that includes the First World War, North Russia, uh, the Second World War, Korea, and all the conflicts in Southeast Asia, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, and peacekeeping operations as well. So, what the memorial does it, it seeks to to commemorate their service and sacrifice throughout over a century of service. Secondly, we're a place of, of education. We have a vast repository of operational and private records made available to anybody who comes through the door. So if you're a PhD student uh, wanting to, to learn all about the, uh, the Australian Imperial Force during the First World War, you can access literally kilometres of records relating to their operations, uh, their form and function, how they operated within the field, both overseas and at home. Uh, we're also a museum. And that's where uh, the vast quantity of people come to view our galleries to learn something about Australia's military history. So we're in a little bit uh, different from what people in the UK may be familiar with through the Imperial War Museum, which is the repository of archival collections as well as the museum. But very much the Australian War Memorial is different in that we, are, we have that major commemorative function. Um, my team is involved in a in a quite a special project involving uh, that that commemoration. Each of the Australians who have died on active service, those 106,000 men and women, their names uh, are in uh, uh, in bronze in the in the cloisters of our commemorative area. My team is involved in writing uh, a last post story, based on just 
any random name off the roll off the roll of honor uh, so that at the end of the day as the memorial wraps up his business we hold a commemorative event very much similar to the event that's held um, at the Menning Gate in Ypres that many many of listeners may be familiar with where we tell the story of an individual who may have been forgotten by history if not by their family so I like to think that in some ways uh, we kind of uh, tell in telling their story we're honoring them for many generations to come now we turn to the subject of today's interview, which is your book on Australian POWs. Could you start by telling us why you did or why you wrote this book? Sure. Um, so the name of my book is called Surviving the Great War, Australian Prisoners of War uh, on the Western Front, 1916 to 1918. I mentioned in the introduction that I was in some part shaped uh, by my family's experience during the First World War. Uh, I had a great uncle on my father's side who at the age of 19 was mortally wounded in his first action. He was a reinforcement that went up, that was that participated in the fighting at Polygon Wood. He was a member of the 55th Battalion, was evacuated to Rini siding at Lessent Hook, where he died two days later and is subsequently buried. On my mother's side, my great-grandfather, uh, again, a reinforcement, was captured in his very first action at Bulukor on the 11th of April, 1917. And when I was at university, I, I was trying to find some publication that a lofty historian may have written that would tell me something about uh, what he had endured as a prisoner of war in Germany. Um, my grandmother was still alive at that time and she had plenty of stories, uh, but I was really trying to make sense of what that was like and having uh, just completed a, 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 a university degree in history, of course I was looking towards perhaps furthering that as a PhD. I discovered that there was no such book existed, despite the fact that there were literally hundreds of books uh, relating to Australians in the First World War, uh, albeit very much focused on the fighting on Gallipoli. And there was a whole industry of scholarly publications dedicated to the experiences of the, the horrific ordeal endured by vast numbers of Australians who were captured in the Second World War, most of them in the Pacific as prisoners of the Japanese. So I kind of found it a bit odd that there was nothing about prisoners, Australia's prisoners, who were captured in the First World War. Um, I soon discovered there was about 4,000 of them captured in all theatres of operations, around 200 by the Ottoman Turks in the fighting in Mesopotamia, on Gallipoli, in the Dardanelles, and in Sinai and Palestine. And to date, there's most of the scholarly attention that has looked at, that has since looked at Australian captivity in the First World War is focused on Australian prisoners of the Turks, those 200 of them. So I kind of felt that the, th the vast number of Australians who remained as prisoners, the 3,848 who were captured by the Germans in the fighting on the Western Front, their story was, had yet been told. And almost 100 years uh, since, there would, I think there had been less than, less than three publications that made reference to them. They are referred to in the, in the vast uh, official history as of Australia in the, in the Great War, written by C.E.W. Bean, but they appear as, as, as footnotes parenthetic to the, to the main battle narrative. So uh, I sought out to, to try and tell their story. It, it's, it struck me as amazing that of those 3,848 of them who were captured on the Western Front, just 327 died, uh, most of them from gunshot and fragmentation wounds received in combat. If the Germans had deliberately mistreated them or they had such a horrible ordeal in, in the German prison, prison camp system, one would have expected their mortality rate to be significantly higher and certainly along the same lines as what we in Australia expect of prisoners of war based on our Second World War prisoner experience. 
But that was not the case. And so it, it transpired, and this is the argument that I make in the introduction to the book, that this chapter or this, this uh, episode of Australian experience of captivity is very different to all the others. And it certainly challenges the way in which we perceive many of the familiar tropes and stereotypes uh, that persist in Australian military history. When we talk about Australian POWs during the Great War, what sort of numbers are we talking about and what sort of sources exist to uh, tell their story? One of, one of the reasons why uh, the story is so little known is because the vast majority of them survive and return home. Uh, their numbers were not great to, turn, to, to start off with. Uh, that 3,848 uh, roughly equates to nearly four battalions of full-strength infantry units. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, their numbers uh, are actually quite, quite small when we consider that on the Western Front, the Australians had lost over 220,000 battle casualties in just two years of fighting. I think they equate to, to something within the region of about 2% of Australian battle casualties on the Western Front. There were certainly more men who were gassed uh, than were captured on the Western Front. After the armistice, Australian, there was some interest, some public interest in the experiences of, of Australians who had been, uh, had fallen into enemy hands, particularly those, the very few who had fallen into the hands of the Turks because they had quite a, quite a horrible ordeal, not necessarily because of their captors, but because they suffered appallingly from disease. And they had, they had a, a unique story to tell. But with the vast majority of these chaps in Germany returning home, I mean, it, it almost seemed as if captivity was a better option than remaining fighting in the trenches. So I think there's these two things that are happening. Captivity in Germany during the First World War, certainly from the Australian experience, was not as bad as fighting in the trenches. And certainly the Germans, uh, on the whole, uh, neither deliberately mistreated uh, or uh, they didn't 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 deliberately mistreat their the captors. Certainly, the Australians in their charge. And so, what were conditions like for Australian POWs uh, held in Germany? I think another reason why uh, we know so little about this episode of of captivity was the fact there was no distinct unified narrative that that came home when the Australians went back to Britain, demobilised and went back to Australia. Some prisoners experienced uh, exceptionally good treatment at the hands of their captors to the point where Privates, corporals and sergeants were being offered uh, cigarettes and cognac and uh, the greatcoats of German soldiers who just moments before had tried to kill them in combat uh, to the exceedingly poor. Um, and I make the point that uh, those who ex had a, a particularly hard time in captivity, we have to be careful about the, the circumstances of that because what we know about the, the German army throughout the course of the war is that it's, it's in a steadily, uh, it's in a slow decline. The German wartime, wartime economy had been geared for a very short war of mobility uh, at the expense of the domestic system at home. And so when Germany finds itself fighting a war on multiple fronts for an extended period of time in, in siege-like conditions, of course, the, Germans, the German population suffers on the home front, as does the German army, which gets bogged down on all fronts. Uh, at the expense of the soldiers who are who are doing the fighting. Of course, the German army is also taking massive amounts of casualties. There's critical food shortages and then also supply issues as well. And all this kind of has a has a massive impact on how Germany is ultimately able to treat its prisoners of war. I take a look at uh, how Australians captured at Fromel in July 1916 in one of the first major actions involving the Australians on the Western Front, how those wounded men fared in German hands. And certainly if you take the accounts by captured Australians at face value, yeah, they had such a horrible time. 
but at the end of the day, they still receive medical treatment. Uh, without it, they may not have been able to survive uh, their, their period in the front line and then on to into the, into the prison camp system. Now, obviously, a, a common narrative of many British, um, certainly post-Second World War films, is that uh, Tommy Atkins spends all his time seeking to outwit our German colleagues and escape. Now, what was the, what was the reality of escape for German, for Australian POWs in German captivity? Yeah, I... Um... I should also say there was a massive difference in uh, the experiences of other ranks compared to officers and that officers generally fared significantly better than, than the other ranks, I should say, just as an addendum to that, that previous question. That also relates to the Smith and stereotype of the popular re- representation of captivity on the silver screen, but perhaps in today's popular imagination. We may think of Steve McQueen in his period of isolation in the cooler with his trusty baseball baseball mitt and, and uh and, and baseball and certainly in the first world war that 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 essence of the colditz myth is is replicated here in the first world war in the, the 1920s one of the main themes and stories to come out of the, of captivity in germany is how stiff upper lip British troops who spent their time in German captivity had spent their every waking hour manufacturing maps, you know, looking for a way to get out. And certainly that was the case. And I make the case that it was often officers and other ranks men who had been treated poorly in captivity uh, that they looked to escape for an incentive. And in some cases they were successful. There was a massive, massive escape attempt made out of the Offizierlagen at uh, Holzminden uh, in July 1918, uh, involving some 300 men, of which 29 had managed to tunnel their way out beneath the prison, prison wall, prison enclosure, and head off towards the Dutch border. Very few of them were very, very successful, of course. But in the First World War, uh, there was no guiding rules or regulations on, on from the War Office on what was expected of officers or men on how, on what, the, how they should behave when they become prisoners of war, and that extended to this notion of being of escape being an officer's duty because there was no guidance at all. Uh, the notes from infantry officers only made sort of passing reference to how uh, German prisoners or how prisoners who fell into British hands should be treated, but there was certainly nothing on on what was expected of officers and men and, and how they should uh, behave once they're in captivity. Once officers and other ranks uh, are taken behind German lines, they're stripped of their of their rifle and equipment. Uh, they some undergo a uh, process of interrogation. They find themselves in Germany. Once once the Red Cross is notified that they are indeed prisoners of war, you find a very you find an, a sense of reluctance for those men to try and escape, particularly when conditions are good. There's an officers' camp at Krefeld, for example, where in mid 1917 there's about 20 Australians who are amongst the uh, amongst who are, are as British officers or amongst their, their their British Empire colleagues. Despite the fact that the prison is guarded by an entire regiment of, of centuries and they're relatively close to the Dutch border, they have they are prisoners are permitted to go on they have parole and go on walks outside the prison walls. There's a steady stream of Red Cross food parcels, there's mail, there's entertainment. Why would you escape? What what was what were you escaping to? The trenches of the Western Front. Of course, these, these Australians who would, uh, they write in uh, accounts, in diaries and of course are of accounts written after the war that Krefeld was, was very much like a holiday camp. It was certainly the best camp that they experienced in Germany. Even the German camp administration was polite and courteous. I mean, some of these experiences themselves actually challenge uh, what we think and expect how prisoners of war 
should behave, shaped, of course, by uh, popular films such as The Great Escape. What I found was of those near 4,000 Australians captured by the Germans and imprisoned in Germany, just 43 escaped. Two of them were officers and both from the same camp at Stroh and Moor. Uh, where conditions were particularly severe, and these men seemed particularly motivated by their uh, the punitive regime of the commandant there. It'd be interesting to actually see uh, whether or not uh, the, the British statistics reveal the same, whether or not there, a, a study could be done of, of, of British Empire officers at Strohenmoor. But nonetheless, um, the vast majority of Australians who do succeed in escaping are not officers, they're other ranks men. Uh, once for the for the other ranks, they spend very little time in in sort of designated prison camps. They, because the the Hague Convention permits them to be used as a workforce, they spend most of their captivity out in the German countryside, being worked in forests and factories and mines and on farms. Uh, and vast majority of those forty three Australian territory are on farms, working close, uh, working with a relative degree of freedom. But they too are kept in a good supply of Red Cross parcels. In some cases, they're able to strike up relationships with the Germans, in particular German ladies. And again, the question has to be asked, you know, look at the reasons for motivating for returning home, turning back to the trenches of the Western Front. Mateship is, a, is said to be a quintessential part of Australia's Anzac legend, but there's certainly nothing, no evidence to suggest that mateship and the need to, to be back with one's mates or what, with one's unit back into the field uh, was a motivating factor. In fact, once once escaping prisoners had returned to their units, they did have the option of whether or not they could return home to Australia or back to their units. And of those 43 who succeeded in escaping, only two returned to their tre- to their to their units and back to the trenches. The vast majority said. I've, I've had enough and went back home to Australia. You mentioned that um, some prisoners were interrogated when they were captured. Did they provide any sort of useful human intelligence uh, for the Germans? I mean, was it worthwhile Germany interrogating these, these prisoners? Absolutely. A short way of putting it is these chaps sang like canaries, mainly because it's the same point that I made previously about the, uh, about the British Empire regulations not informing its, its officers and men on how to behave as prisoners of war. Certainly, there were instructions on how to elicit prisoners, how to elicit information from prisoners, but nothing, no guiding authority on what officers and men should do or say or what they shouldn't be carrying um, once they're captured by the enemy. So when the Australians arrive on the Western Front in uh, July, in May, not, well, uh, in early 1916, the first Australian uh, prisoners are lost in a, in a German trench raid on uh, just outside of Amontier in, in May 1916. They're able to capture Australians who, who see the Germans for the first time. You know, they're expecting these beastly ogres in these, these guys who had committed terrible atrocities across the Western Front. But of course, they're lulled into a false sense of security. These guys uh, treat them kindly. They give them, provide them medical treatment. They give them cigarettes and alcohol. And so when, uh, when German intelligence officers start asking them questions, uh, we know from the German records that these chaps were quite open and honest. And sometimes they were quite scathing about their own officers, uh, about morale. And so as a consequence, they, they, they're quite disparaging towards that. And the Germans pick up on that. They, they give full information about the arrangement of the Australian defences in the area. And in some cases, actually uh, uh, tell the Germans for the first time that of further imminent attacks. And certainly one of the consequences of that first trench raid outside of Amontier 
is the fact that one there's an Australian officer who tells them that an attack within the in the Amentier area is coming within the next couple of weeks. And of course, that transpires to be the Battle of Fromel. Fromel itself, um, Australian officers go into battle carrying the very orders that come down from uh, from core headquarters, clearly stating that the attack is nothing more than a diversion. And we know from the German German documents that uh, these uh, the Australian officer concerned says it was quite an error of judgment to allow such an important document to fall into the German hands. So um, this is this is quite explosive stuff. I mean, uh, we expect Australian soldiers to perform well in battle and, and all that sort of stuff to uphold the Anzac legend and the, all virtues of mateship. But the reality is something different. One of the consequences of this is that the uh, information through the neutral countries gets fed back into the British Empire uh, or the British Army training loop. Uh, and all British regiments, whether they're Australian, Canadian or otherwise, around the Somme period are routinely reminded of how men should behave once they fall into the hands of the enemy. This comes about after the capture of about a thousand Australians during the fighting of 1916. So from that point onwards, there's, re- there's a regular training schedule that, that instructs and reminds troops that they're not to talk under interrogation by beyond giving their name, rank, and unit, so they, their details can be accurately captured and fed through the through the Red Cross. Then the next of kin notified that they are indeed prisoners of war. But then also, no military or no operational matters are, are discussed with the Germans at all, who are, as it turns out, quite adept at listing such information from prisoners of war. So what efforts were undertaken by civilians in Australia and around the empire to support Australian POWs in captivity? One of the um, one of the great sort of unsung heroes, I guess, of uh, this story is the Australian women uh, who are working for the Red Cross, who are able to not only give some sort of give grieving families a sense that their missing son, brother or husband are alive and, are, as, and well as a prisoner of war, but once they are confirmed as being prisoners of war, they're able to send individuals uh, a steady stream of, of food and clothing parcels from from uh, London that makes them wholly sufficient from the German supply provisions. I think um, officers uh, receive uh, parcels every two weeks. And I think putting rank aside, over the, if we have a look at the average quantity of, of, of food, it's something like 100 kilograms per man per day <laughs> there's just such an enormous amount of food and clothing that's going towards australian prisoners of war in germany and, and certainly uh, british british prisoners as, as a whole when the when britain goes to war uh in not in august 1914 australia as a dominion of the british empire is automatically a war several days later the australian red cross is formally established here and within short time, there's over 2,200 uh, Red Cross branches that opened up across Australia that then is staffed by over 102,000 volunteers, mainly most of them are women. And they're very proactive at fundraising. In fact, by 1918, they're able to raise 176,000 pounds from, from Australian uh, fundraising efforts, which then goes on to, to, to purchase nearly 400,000 parcels of food destined for Australian prisoners of war in both the Ottoman Empire and in Germany. That's a vast number of uh, amount of food. Um, parcels include condensed milk, tinned meat, medical supplies. You know, prisoners could actually write to the Australian Red Cross and specifically request for certain items to be included in the next batch of parcels. And so 
I mentioned earlier that Germany is in this this steadily declining state of, of this declining state of economic ruin, I guess. Um, and the Australian prisoners themselves, as um, as I'm sure the British the British prisoners are them uh, as well, who are kept, also kept up on a on a uh, steady diet of Red Cross food parcels, they're ultimately faring better than your average German civilians. Um, you also, once prisoners are in contact with the Red Cross, they're getting enough mail and food from home. They're able to barter and exchange items from their Red Cross food parcels with German guards and civilians for things like compasses, bolt cutters, escape equipment, maps. In some in some cases, Australians uh, who are working out on the farms uh, with German civilians are being approached by their very overseers for, for tea <laughs> uh, and, and coffee. These certain elements, and in some cases, uh, I know of one, at least uh, two or three instances where where German women approach prisoners of war in exchange or for soap in exchange for their bodies. It, things are that economically strained in Germany during that time. So again, all this comes back down to the efforts of the Australian Red Cross uh, Society. Those two two uh, key branches: the Prisoner of War Department, which is charged with uh, sending prisoners of war vast quantities of food and clothing, which is all being raised, being being purchased with fundraising efforts made here in Australia. But then there's also the Red Cross Wounded and Missing Inquiry Bureau. What they are doing is trying to they feed requests coming from Australia to British searchers in the UK who are then interviewing. Uh, officers and men from across the British Empire about the whereabouts of certain individuals appearing on missing prisoner of war lists. In some cases, they're able to confirm men listed as missing as as being killed in action. In other cases, uh, there's there's compelling evidence to suggest that some individuals had been taken prisoner. And indeed, about about 10 percent of those inquiries that are made by the Australian Red Cross turned out to be men who had been captured by the enemy. And how did Australian PWs adapt to captivity? Good question, because if uh, prisoners aren't spending their every waking hour trying to escape, what are they doing? <laughs> what are they? Are they like Steve McQueen in the uh, in the cooler in The Great Escape, sort of you know belting a, a baseball up against the wall? I can assure you they're not. I think one of the most remarkable things uh, about uh, the experience of the Australians, they themselves talk about overcoming the challenges and stigma that came with surrender. Many of them, uh, there's, there's one, at least one individual who talked about feeling as though he had surrendered manhood the moment he had surrendered or was captured by the enemy. But it also goes on to talk about how he adapted to life as a prisoner of war. And what I found, uh, what I found quite interesting is if you have a look at statements made by prisoners after their return from England, 2,500 copies of which we have in the Australian War Memorial, so we have a quite a rich resource relating to the experiences of these guys. They talk about being involved in the parcel room or you know being involved in the wash house working doing canal work milking cows on a farm these guys were able to overcome the challenges that were presented to them redefine themselves as prisoners of war funnily enough they didn't lose their martial bearing and, and, and routine either because uh, they still they were equipped with uniforms that they were quite from the Red Cross. They were British uniforms, the old Kitchener blue uniforms uh, that they were quite proud to wear. They they asked for regimental badges and battalion colour patches so that they could be looking quite smart as soldiers. They kept haircuts. They shaved every day. They paraded. They respected the rank of of uh, their own prisoners and those of the enemy. These were still men who were still part of a, a military machine. Uh, and they prided themselves as still being soldiers, despite, albeit behind German barbed wire. Um, there's at least uh, there's one individual who has a, has a great story. His name is uh, Private Douglas Grant. He's from the 13th Battalion. He's uh, an Indigenous Australian 
who enlists in the AIF. Uh, he, in fact, he was the sole survivor of a, an indigenous massacre uh, in Queensland in the 1800s and during his early years had been adopted by an anthropologist and grew up in Sydney where he attended, a, attended school and, and became a draftsman and was very closely associated with the Australian Museum. He enlists in the AIF and goes off to fight on the Western Front and is captured. And being a dark-skinned Aboriginal soldier, he immediately comes because is of quite interest to to the Germans. And he ends up at the Hartmut Lager, the Half Moon Camp for Muslim prisoners, just outside of Berlin, at a place called Wunsdorf Zorsen, where this was kind of like a, a a camp that had originally been created to house all of Germany's Muslim prisoners in an effort to try and uh, raise their indignation against their colonial overseers. The Germans were looking for to create a, a Muslim brigade of troops to then send off to the fighting on the Western Front. Uh, sorry, on, in, uh, in the fighting in the Middle East. And of course, it wasn't a great success, but the prisoners then remained outside of Berlin at, at Wunsdorf Sorsen. So here's this uh, indigenous Australian soldier, Douglas Grant. He has Im immaculate copper plate handwriting, incredibly, uh, incredible literary genius. He enjoys reading immensely. And he comes under the attention of the camp administrators who routinely let who let anthropologists and scientists who live and study nearby in Berlin to come and visit the camp because it's often better to them to visit the camp than, than do studies like such, do their studies around the world. So Douglas Grant begins work in the postal room and he takes care of the local Sikh, some Sikh and Punjabs who are also uh, attached to the camp, but ultimately go out to a, a work party about 150 kilometers away. Um, some of them are Muslim prisoners. Douglas Grant is able to correspond with the relevant authorities through an interpreter so that they can be supplied with uh, ghee, atta, rice, curry, anything, everything that was appropriate for their religious custom. And in July 1918, he was able to to fit to send them uh, enough of their, their supplies uh, so they could observe Ramadan out on a work camp 150 kilometers away in the midst of Germany. <laughs> so, um, you know, quite, and he writes, Douglas Grant later writes to the Australian Red Cross saying that he had found his, he, he found solace in being in of service as much as being a prisoner of war. So clearly a man who didn't sort of sit down and wallow away the rest of the years of, of the war in captivity, but certainly redefined his role to, to make uh, conditions better for himself, conditions better for he himself and then also for other prisoners. So what happened to these prisoners when they got back to the civilian life in Australia in the 1920s? Once, uh, once the armistice had occurred, um, prisoners of war in Germany were released. Uh, there was a repatriation system uh, that was wholly complete by April April 1919. Over 130,000 British Empire prisoners of war had been brought back from Germany, back through into through England and for dispersal, for in the Australian case, back home to Australia. As part of that process, uh, the Australian Imperial Force uh, Administration Headquarters was very keen on capturing their experiences. And so uh, when they there was a reception camp at Ripon and uh, it was mandatory for prisoners, Australian prisoners, to be held in isolation there, undergo a medical, receive new uniforms, their back pay, and undertake uh, sort of a, a debriefing session. And the results of that debriefing session produced, as I mentioned, about 2,500 individual statements on how these men were captured, their initial treatment behind the lines, and subsequent experiences in German captivity, which 
for a historian 100 years down the track proved was exceptionally rewarding. I think the intention had been for those statements to be of use for the writing of the official history by C.E.W. Bean, who later composed those 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 12 volumes of Australia and the Great War. But those records uh, were remain, remained the property of defence and remained within defence until 1959, uh, well after the history, official history had been written. Needless to say, uh, once, uh, once Australians had passed through those processing and distribution camps, they received their back pay and went on four weeks leave. A few few drinks were had, a few fights were had. <laughs> the Australians were notorious for getting into for disciplinary matters. But needless to say, they uh, also took part in education schemes that were that prepared them for civilian life. And in some cases, Australians had spent the many many months in in German captivity preparing for what would what would happen when they went home. Some studied languages, others studied accounting. There were training courses. They were avid readers. Some studied German farming methods, which all prepared them for life after returning home. Part of the demobilization process meant that Australian units didn't return home together complete. They went as drafts where men, once they received, went home to Australia, they underwent more medicals and ultimately received their discharge because the AIF as a whole was an all-volunteer army. Men who had, who, had, uh, who had experienced captivity in Germany, as I mentioned, there was some public interest in their experiences, but that begins to fade very, very quickly because the main dominant story of the First World War is Australia's 60,000 war dead and the price that ultimately that Australia as a nation had paid. What's interesting is that in recent times, there has been a great deal of, of scholarly attention in Australia on how Australian soldiers fared in the, in the years afterwards. The notion of the, of the shattered Anzac, I guess, the fact that the Great War had this tremendous impact in the minds and bodies and the lives of Australians who had fought in the First World War, irreparable damage of wounded soldiers and psychologically traumatised soldiers, and indeed that, that tended to shape the years that came as men battled demons you know, from the war you know, and their families and also had to, had to uh, battle the repatriation system. To, to prove that their their illnesses or their their concerns were, were war related. And Australian prisoners of war were no different from the vast majority of Australians who went through that experience. And and certainly there was there was plenty of individual cases of men who we deemed shattered Anzacs, these men whose whose lives were irreparably damaged by either the war or their experiences in captivity. But I kind of wanted to challenge that a little bit because in some respects that the scholarly studies that had, had delved into this aspect of Australia's wartime past used sources that were incredibly self-selecting. We're very fortunate that the individual case files from the Department of Repatriation are beginning to become available and open to members of the public. So we can actually have a look at individuals and their long-time, their long-term dealings with the system that ultimately uh, was responsible for their pension. Uh, and they're co the correspondence of individuals trying to get medical expenses or financial hardship sort of uh, supported through government means. So what I did was, uh, rather than just looking at the records themselves, I decided to, to do a battalion study. And I looked at the men of the 13th Battalion. There's about 160 of them who become prisoners of the war of the Germans. Uh, many of them uh, at Bullecourt on the 11th of April 1917. And I wanted to have a look at how they fared in the years afterwards. And like I said, there's there's plenty of them who define, who are clearly defined as shattered Anzacs, men who drink heavily, are abusive, who there are suicide cases. In fact, one of the suicide cases I talk about occurs no less than three weeks after one chap who had endured two years in captivity in Germany returns home to Australia. 
I was quite mindful of the concept of others, of men who'd simply put their hardships of the war behind them and got on with the rest of their life in the, in the face of the immense hardships they ultimately faced back home. I found individuals who retrained, found employment, had families, had great successes in their lives that aren't so well documented in the public records here in Australia. So I researched the, the, the private lives of 260 men to come up with a conclusion, a more balanced assessment. And in fact, I found over 80 men who, who, despite their wartime experiences and despite their hardships, had no dealings with the Department of Repatriation and sought no benefits from them, even though in some cases they were deserving. There's one individual by the name of Oswald McClelland, who, as years get on, uh, in the 1950s, writes requesting a pair of glasses, despite the fact that he had been treated terribly in German captivity, uh, had been beaten uh, and had been lived for, for, for several decades with diffused vertebrae and had bronchial problems. His only request was for the repatriation department was to pay for his pair of glasses in his, in his late 60s. So a fascinating insight. I think whilst, we can, uh, whilst Australians do remember the impact of the war through the, the specific cases of shattered Anzacs, I think also much could be said for individuals who simply put their, were able to find the capacity to put the war experiences behind them and get on with the rest of their lives the best they possibly could. Which leads me to my final question. Where can people learn more about your work and the work of the Australian War Memorial? Uh, online is, is generally the best, but I'm fairly active on Twitter at, uh, at Pegram Aaron. I'm also on Academia, so feel free to give me a follow. I generally post most of my work, my written work and published work, up there uh, freely available for people to access. So if you're not very familiar with academia, I very highly recommend it. It's like, it's, it's like Facebook for scholars. It's the best way of putting it. But in terms, I'm also uh, fairly active in publishing material in the War Memorial's wartime magazine, uh, which is available for subscription uh, here in Australia. And we do post out to the UK. But of course, the, the big ticket item, of course, is my book, Surviving the Great War, Australian Prisoners of War on the Western Front from 1916 to 1918. Um, it's available from Amazon UK for £35. Uh, but of course, if you if you order through the book depository, uh, you can pick it up for thirty seven pound fifty nine with free postage, free international postage. So, what a what a great deal! <laughs> Aaron, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me, Tom. You have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.